Um, good morning again, Civil Oak Creek. Uh, if you have not met me, I am the adult ministries pastor here, and I'm always super grateful for an opportunity to share what God has been teaching me in hopes that you find value in that as well. Uh, I am the mother of Generation Y, Z, and Alpha. Other definitions put that as Generation Y, born in the late 80s to uh, late 90s, most often considered the baby boomer children, uh, children of baby boomers. Gen Z is mostly uh, those born late 90s to early 2010s. And then the newest generation, Alpha, if you've never heard of that one, that's mid 2000s to 2025. Uh, other definitions then put all three of my kids, 14 up to 27, in the same generation of Gen Z. And I mention my kids' generational labels for a reason. Because Barna, a research group, uh, back in February, published, published the results of a survey that they did in October of 22. And they asked this, they said, Gen Z, respond to this statement. I am more open to God today than I was before the pandemic. And the result of that was that 59% agreed or strongly agreed with that statement. That is three out of every five said, I am more open to God today than I was before the pandemic. You know what that could say to us as a church? This time that we are in, it's filled with opportunity. I was telling a fellow teammate the other day that I was walking out to my car and I was frustrated about something. I can't remember what it was, um, but I caught sight of my reflection in the window of the car. Side note, don't ever do that. <laughs> Took a moment to realize that's not your mom, that's you. Um, but as I got in, I realized whatever I was frustrated about, it was written all over my face and my countenance. And what popped into my head was, if anybody encountered Kristen right now, would they say, ooh, I, I, I want what she has? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Uh, often, though, we walk around like that, defeated and joyless, forgetting that we've got a God that is fully in control. And we got to figure out how to be hope to a generation that's looking at a world that seems really unhopeful. And that Barna report makes me get just a little bit worked up about what we as a church offer, because we need to offer something different, something countercultural. And because Doug and I are raising the next generation, because you are raising the next generation, because some of you, you are that next generation. And most importantly, because this church has laid a stake in the ground that we are going to raise up our next generation to the highest level. It's hugely important that we use this time well. On this Memorial Day, I want to introduce you to someone. His name is Klaus Albert Helmers. He was born in 1893 in the Midwest, and in World War I, he volunteered to be a stretcher bearer. Stretcher bearers had the highest mortality rate of any position. So let me say it again. Albert, as he was known to our family, 
volunteered for that. And here's some other perspective that I learned from the University of Kansas. In World War I, stretcher bearers experienced life and death on battlefields unlike any other in history. In many instances, they would carry a casualty from the front lines of, of fire only to find out they were gone by the time they got there. They would bond with their patients and then become friends and not want to leave them. Bearers learn to carry casualties on their backs because their weight would help propel them forward and keep them moving in a straight path. The life of a stretcher bearer in that great war was a series of carries, mostly of the living and often of the dying. When I knew Albert, great grandpa to me, he had a kind, gentle face. He had ice blue, watery eyes, and he would sit in a chair, the same chair, while I would play with some really out-of-date toys on his floor as I would visit with my grandparents every Sunday. And what I didn't know then was that he was not just great-grandpa. I was sitting at the feet of one of the greatest generations, and I would later come to uh, feel like his story was one of a hero, though he would probably hate me saying that. And if I could go back in time, the questions that I would ask, why did you volunteer? Were you scared? How many did you carry? Do you remember their names? And what gave you the courage to keep going no matter what? And how did you come back and just be a regular farmer and dad and grandpa? And though I won't get to ask him these questions, I think there is something for us to discover in his journey and many more who choose to lay down their life, like we remember on this weekend. I was sitting at the feet of a great man, Klaus Albert Helmers. But we, as Christ followers, if we've chosen him, we are sitting at the feet of the greatest hope ever given. And yet we walk around dejected, joyless, sometimes angry, divisive. So why could Albert choose to maintain that position and keep going one way or the other. I believe he and many like him could see something beyond themselves. They could see themselves as part of something bigger, as creating a hope and a future no matter what it takes. It's not unlike what we read about in Mark when the friends carried their friend on a stretcher to Jesus, going up on the roof, digging holes in the roof just to get him to the only hope. In this time of opportunity, when the next generation is open, open to knowing more about God today than ever before, we've been given a gift, a gift to share the greatest hope ever given. And we, we are the stretcher bearers of hope to our world. And what we have to ask is, are we willing to do what it takes? And the question that I've been asking myself lately is, what does it take? What does that mean for us as a church? There's a, a wise quote from an Old Testament theologian. His name is Walter Brueggemann. And he talks about the role of the church today and, and our calling in it. And he says this about what it takes. The prophetic tasks of the church 
are to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion. To grieve in a society that practices denial and to express hope in a society that lives in despair. There's not only wisdom in those words, there's also wisdom in the connection of those tasks to each other. And before we get to hope, we got to talk about those first two tasks of the church. And as we do, we're going to look at a passage uh, in, uh, in Philippians. Paul wrote this letter to a church in Philippi, and he's asking them to do some of these practices to be this healthy church in the chaos in the culture that was happening in their time. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 4, and we're going to look at vo verses 4 through 9 as we explore the tasks of telling truth and grieving with. So let's start with truth. One of the tasks of the church is to tell truth to a society that lives in illusion. The definition of illusion is something which is deceptive in its appearance. It looks like truth, but in fact is false. How often do we experience that illusion in our world today? And as we look at Philippians 4, and in verse 8, Apostle Paul is writing a letter, and he's saying, he's encouraging the church to do these things that keep their minds and their hearts on Christ. And it says this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Some theologians think that these are lists of virtues from the philosophers of that day, but note where Paul begins. In this verse, he says, finally, meaning from now on, finally, brothers, siblings in Christ, what he's saying is, from now on, family, think about what is true. He starts with truth. And in one of the commentaries I read, it says that truth is that which corresponds to reality. Anxiety comes when false ideas and unreal circumstances occupy the mind instead of truth. Ultimately, thinking on truth is thinking on Jesus, who is truth. In John, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, Thomas, asked him this, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds with this, I am the way and the truth and the life. Earlier in John, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Later in John, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And one more, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth is Jesus, and knowing him keeps us from the illusions of this world that can sometimes look like truth. For a short time, a really short time, I was a bank teller. And when uh, they trained us on how to recognize counterfeit currency, the emphasis of that training was really on the characteristics and the design of real currency. 
they focused on what was true about the currency. The more that we know and are with Jesus, the more we have an opportunity to recognize the illusion. Telling truth, knowing and talking about Jesus is the hope to the illusions in this broken world. Telling truth to the next generation, the truth that God loves them, that he chose them before they were born, that he loves them so much that he wants to have a relationship with him, that he wants to walk them through the chaos of this world. The truth that God sent his son, Jesus, who took on their fallen mess, all of our fallen mess, that, di that he died in their place so that he can have a living, breathing relationship with them that they can have a living, breathing relationship with the creator of the universe. Tell truth to a society that lives in illusion. Truth is Jesus. And then we need to grieve with a society in, in denial. That's the second task of the church, because here's the thing. We cannot separate telling truth from mercy. The church needs to grieve with the society that practices denial. In verse five in our scripture this morning, Paul tells the church, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness in this scripture is a word that means gentleness, kindness, tolerance, having a sort of leniency. Let your gentleness be known to all. When we're kind and gentle, when we enter into the suffering of others, when we grieve with them, we're showing a different way to those who are in denial. In our reasonableness, in our grieving with, we show them that there's a better option of walking through their pain. When great-grandpa Albert carried someone suffering through those lines, he chose to enter into someone's suffering. I don't know if you're aware, but our next generation is kind of facing a mountain of suffering and denial. And I thought seriously about giving you all the latest Pew Research data on that. But the reality is, I think we know. I think we know that there's a rise in anxiety and depression and suicide, all these outward signs of an inward struggle. We know that this world is broken. So instead, I want to share with you uh, some things that our youth pastor Ashley and some leaders discovered when they went to a conference recently. We as the church are missing Gen Z. There are 72 million Gen Zers. It makes up the largest living generation. 30% say religion is important. 20% say the church is important. That means that 80% say the church has no value to them. That 57.6 million could make up the largest state in the U.S. And as Pastor Ashley shared with us, here's what those stats mean. That means that we have to look at this next generation like an unreached people group. It's missional. And yet, there is a rise globally in those coming to know Christ. 
So why is the church in the U.S. not where they're looking for the answers? When 59%, almost 60% say that they are more open to God today than ever before. Maybe the disconnect is that we're not connecting with our next generation who is suffering and in denial. Are we letting our gentle tolerance be seen? Or are they seeing the judgment and the disappointment and the frustration or even the anger on our very countenance? What are they seeing when they catch sight of our lives in the window of their journey? Paul writes an encouragement to the church, and here's what he says in the, the top of our scripture today. It says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which is beyond all human understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Paul was writing this from prison and he was probably suffering things that we cannot even imagine and maybe even thinking it, he was certain to be put to death. And yet he is encouraging a church in the middle of suffering to do what? To rejoice, to pray, to spend time together, to express gratitude, to cry out to him with our requests. And what Paul experienced in the midst of suffering was peace beyond a human understanding. And why? Because of what he says later, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We need to tell truth to the illusion. And we need to grieve and connect with a society that's in denial. Those two things cannot be disconnected from each other. Truth and gentleness. And then both of those are what point to expressing hope in a society that lives in despair. The next generation needs to see a lived hope of the gospel. And Paul is saying, here's how you do it, church. Be a church that rejoices, that prays, that lives in community, that takes their requests to God. And then in 1 John 3.16, we see this. We know that what love is because Christ Jesus gave his life for us. So we should give our lives for our brothers and sisters. Suppose somebody sees a brother or sister in need and is able to help them. And suppose that person doesn't take pity on those in need then how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, don't just talk about love. Put your love into action. Then it will truly be love. Tell truth. Truth is Jesus. Grieve with. Grieving with, that's love. And then express hope in a society in despair. Romans 5, 5 says, and hope it does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
that's the same Holy Spirit that you read about in Genesis that's hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit that is powerful enough to walk us through anything in this world. The biblical definition of hope is confident expectation. And hope for Christ followers is rooted in our faith, in Christ, in our salvation. And then it's also through the love that's poured into us through the Holy Spirit. In this beautiful article that was written by a lady named Heather Riggleman, um, I don't know if you guys are like this, I need a word picture about that. And she wrote this beautiful article that she gives us a word picture about hope. And she says this, hope is Hannah praying fervently, knowing God hears her even while she's still being considered a drunk. Hope is a father forgiving his wayward child. Hope is oxygen that our souls breathe. Hope is a torrential downpour that washes the world clean. Hope is praying that your loved one will be found alive when tragedy strikes. Hope is knowing that we will be reunited with our loved ones on the other side of heaven. Hope is the soldier who begs Jesus to heal his son while he's miles away. Hope is a foster child finding a family that fiercely loves them. Hope is watching an autistic child make a friend. Hope is walking hand in hand with Christ. The Bible that we look to, that orders our steps, that guides our path, it's a story of two kingdoms. It's a story of empire kingdom, where the world says you are here to build your empire and be comfortable. And then there's the story of God's kingdom, which is the absolute opposite. And you see people making this decision for one kingdom or the other. Even in Matthew 20, you see the disciples, mom, even she's asking Jesus, Hey, when James and John get to heaven, will you place them at the right hand and the left hand of the throne? And she's asking that through this empire mindset, wanting honor for them. And Jesus calls his disciples to him. And he says, you know, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones, their leaders, they exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever must be great must become a servant. Whoever would be first must become your slave. And even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The hope that we need to express to a society in despair is watching our choice for that God's kingdom, not empire. That's expressing hope to this next generation. Hebrews 1.11 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, assurance and conviction. This morning, we are right between a conversation that our senior pastor Paul is having with us about following Jesus. Since the beginning of the year, he's been walking us through those practices that help us remain with Jesus. Next week, he starts 
then how do we become like him as we spend time with him, much uh, like the disciples did sitting at the feet of their rabbi. So today we are sitting at the intersection, talking about hope, sitting at the intersection of being with and becoming like. Because hope is the outflow of following Jesus. It's not something you muster up. It's not something you paste on your face or knuckle your way through. And I'll be honest, there's a lot of that language in our culture today. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not a bad thing. It's just not what a society in despair is gonna need to find hope. Hope is an outflow of being with and being like. So tell truth. Grieve with those who don't know Jesus and then express hope. And you know what? An expressed hope shares the gospel message with those whom God has placed in our circles. Sometimes telling truth means actually sharing the gospel message and I know some of us kind of groan a little bit when we hear that because we think, I am not qualified to do that. Kristen, I am a hot mess. I have no business uh, sharing about Jesus. Besides, uh, there's people trained to do that. And I'm here to tell you, no. As Christ followers, we are all called and we are all qualified. I was at a, a conference last month, and at that point, um, I uh, already knew that I, God was leading me towards talking about hope, and I had the privilege of sitting under a guest teacher, Christy McClelland. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of her. And I even said to our uh, executive pastor who was with me, I said, uh, I think I'm going to be talking about hope. And Christy walks on stage, and she says, I'm going to talk about hope. <laughs> God's in the details. But she reminded us that God called the unqualified to share the gospel. In Mark 2, 13 to 14, Jesus, it says, Jesus, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew he got up and he followed him. Matthew at the time was doing the dirty, shameful, gross work of collecting taxes from his very own people when Jesus walked up and he called him. This is Jesus' way. He didn't have an interview. He didn't have a trial period where Matthew had to stop being so shameful. There wasn't a lightning bolt that suddenly changed Matthew into somebody else. And the profound question that Christy asked us was this. What if hope and the seed of the kingdom lies in your wound and your inability and not in your strength? What if hope lies in your inability the word for hope in scripture is tikva. It's fun to say. Uh, it shows up in the King James Version about 130 times, and most often in Psalms, as you can probably imagine. But the second most place that it shows up is Job in the book about suffering. And tikva does mean optimism or uh, expectation, but in Hebrew, it also means cord. 
And Christy shared with us, it's the same word that shows up in the Old Testament in Joshua 2, when Joshua sends two men, men of God, into Jericho. And those men of God then encounter a lady named Rahab. Uh, Rahab had already heard about this powerful God of Israel. And so she agrees to hide these men so that they wouldn't be killed by the king of Jericho in exchange for uh, remembering her family. Rahab risked her life to give these men help. And in verse 15 of Joshua 2, it says, then she let them down by a cord through the window. Rahab took a step of faith, could have been killed, and it says she tied a scarlet tikva in the window. She let down hope to these men of God. God used a female prostitute to give hope. So why do I tell you about Matthew and Rahab? Because when we choose to follow Jesus, when we look to him as our rabbi, he's already chosen us right where we're at. And he gives us all we need. He says, follow me. You can become like me. You are called and you are qualified. And he invites us to have hope. And he invites us like Rahab to actively share that hope to our world. Active hope shares the gospel message. We're called and we're qualified. The prophetic tasks of the church are to tell truth to a society that lives in illusion, to grieve in a society that practices denial, to express hope in a society that lives in despair. Truth is Jesus. Grieving with, that's love. And expressing hope is sharing the greatest hope that ever was. And you know what all that is? Love God. Love people, make disciples. It will remain the primary work of the church and you're called and you're qualified. For those of you in here who have made that choice, hope for you is found in Jesus and it's an active expressed hope. And then when you let your reasonableness be known, when you're gentle with those who are in denial, you gain a seat at their table to share the greatest hope that ever was. There's almost 60% of our next generation waiting for us to show our hope in our life and in our words. That hope is found in the suffering and the death and the resurrection of a fully divine, fully human Jesus. He is the greatest hope. And then I'm sure there's some of you in here that are thinking, when I saw hope on the screen, I was thinking, I just need some hope. I see you. I know some of your stories. And I just want to be here to tell you that your hope is found in answering that question. Who is Jesus for me? And when you say, I'm a mess, I'm filled with sin. And you just simply say, I'm sorry for that. And Lord, I accept what you did on the cross for me. I accept that gift and I want to follow you. You gain hope. 
you're left with a Holy Spirit that gives you peace beyond all understanding. And for the rest of us, um, let's consider this this morning. Who are we carrying in this battle of life? Who are we taking from the front lines of despair to the healer of hope? And more specifically, who in our next generation are we carrying? Because when we're carrying another on our back, it keeps us moving forward in the path of Jesus. The final words in our scripture this morning say this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is saying, take these things out into your world and practice them. And then may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can abound in hope. When you leave today, there's two things I want you to remember. One, when you go out to your car, you're gonna find just below the driver side handle, a magnet. And it just says, be hope. It's just a reminder that as we go out into our other 167 hours, we are reflecting something to our next generation. Let it be hope. The second thing is this, if you're listening and you're thinking, I'm ready to carry somebody. I'm ready to carry the next generation. Our next gen pastors, uh, Charlotte and Ashley from Kids Geek Creek and Overflow are gonna be in the lobby. Friends, we've been gifted with some next generation here. They need you. So if you're willing to dive in, go talk to Charlotte and Ashley, even if it's with prayer, go talk to them and find out how you can be hope uh, to our next generation. Before I pray us out, if you have questions about who Jesus is to you, I'd love to talk to you. Any of our pastors on staff would love to talk with you. So don't hesitate to reach out. And then last but not least, if you're new, also would like to meet you. So come on up. I'll be up here this morning as will one of our executive pastors. Let's go and be hope. Let me pray us out. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful. We're grateful for the ability to worship in freedom. We're grateful that you leave us with the Holy Spirit, that you call us and you qualify us. Lord, I just ask that in this room today, that there will be some decisions made to be hope to our world, to embrace hope through your son. Make us the hands and feet of you out to our next generation. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great Memorial Day, everyone.